right. Good afternoon, guys. Great to see you guys and ladies. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Uh, great to see uh, all of y'all. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, let me just confess up front that uh, one of the most intimidating um, tasks of my uh, entire career is any time having to follow Chuck Lawless. Uh, that's just not a fair thing for anybody to have to do, but I know you were blessed in being able to hear, uh, hear him. Um, I'm going to break a cardinal rule of uh, you know public speaking and that is to um, start off with a uh, uh, a reference to sports and college football fans in the room how many of you just out of curiosity I know everybody's not and if you're not just hang with me I'm actually going to mix my metaphors here in just a second um, I any Clemson fans let me just ask that okay see that's a problem uh, because I am a, I'm an avid uh, University of Alabama fan. I, I, I grew up, uh, I grew up uh, an Alabama fan. My folks are from Alabama. I grew up some there, uh, and uh, went back to go to college there. And so, uh, but yes, there's still hope. Well, you need to listen to the rest of what I'm about to say, okay? Because this is really important. So. I have told um, I have told a number of people that if I wasn't an Alabama fan, uh, I would be a Clemson fan, uh, and that's kind of don't don't repeat that out of this room, okay? I'm sorry we're we're recording this. I can get in trouble with some of my Alabama folks, but I I love uh, Dabo Sweeney. I love the head coach at University of Clemson. I love what he's doing, and I love so many things about. Uh, you know the the work that he's doing. I love a lot of the players. You know he's just he, he's a magnet for some just really good kids uh, down there. And and uh, one of the things about Dabo Sweeney is that he just has fun, and he you know he lets his players have fun. I'm not so sure that I can say that about Nick Saban at the University of Alabama. You know my 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 favorite team. Um, but one of the things, one of the contrasts between those two guys uh, is uh, Sweeney seems to be able to keep coaches. Uh, they, they guys like to stay, and that creates incredible amount of stability. Uh, guys like working for him. I'm not saying they don't with Nick Saban. I'm just saying they they, they obviously like working for uh, Dabo Sweeney. They like being there, like the atmosphere, and those they stay long, and that creates a stability. Uh, that certainly contributes to building a strong program. Nick Saban, on the other hand, um, seems to have a turnover in offensive and defensive coordinators just about on a yearly basis, as well as many other uh, positions in the, you know, in the, um, the, you know, as coaching staff. And that, that creates challenges, I think, for rebuilding every year. Um, but the interesting thing about that turnover in coaches under Nick Saban is he has obviously placed more head coaches in major college programs in other parts of the country, not just the Southeast Conference, but in other places as well. And as much as I like the stability and as much as I like what the character quality is that creates that atmosphere at Clemson, I think I would have to say to you that the Apostle Paul was more uh, interested in maybe developing 
a leadership pipeline um, that that Coach Saban has done at the University of Alabama. Now, I'm not trying, you know, to to make this a sports issue or college football or an Alabama Clemson or anybody else. You understand, you understand what I'm saying. Yes, uh, you got to rebuild every year, but what an incredible thing to have influenced and mentored and trained. Uh, guys to be able to go out and do what you do and not only to do what you do but to do it at an incredibly high level uh, and 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 continue uh, that I, I think w when we think about developing leaders uh, we want to draw from both of those uh, you know if we learn anything from these you know the, these two coaches uh, we, we want to, to draw from, you know, people wanting to be around us, liking to play with us, liking to work with us, and uh, we want to create a great atmosphere for them, but at the same time, we ultimately want to be pushing guys out uh, to go out and do what we do and hopefully do a better job, take it to uh, you know, take it to another level. Uh, and so uh, what, what Scott and I are going to do this afternoon is talk to you just a little bit about the leadership uh, pipeline. We're, we want to uh, think about it uh, from two different standpoints. One, just with regard to challenging leaders, uh, challenging leaders to go out and to do this thing and being intentional about that. And then and then the second part, I'll do that first part. Scott's going to come back and he's going to talk uh, some about developing leaders. You know? And so these two things go together. Now You might expect two preachers to do what we're going to do. Um, uh, we have a hard time talking without uh, there being some element of sermonizing in it and preaching. And uh, I, I, wanna, I want you to look at a biblical text uh, because I, I do think that the greatest foundation that we have for doing this thing of developing leaders, sending them out, creating a leadership pipeline is what we see in the ministry of individuals like the Apostle Paul uh, who were, were, were doing just that. He was, I mean, you think about all the names uh, that come up, you know, Titus and Epaphroditus and Timothy and, you know, all the individuals that he was, he was sending out and uh, he had impacted and he had developed and he was sending out. Uh, we obviously have a great model. Uh, we've got a great model for, uh, you know, for doing that. So we want to call your attention to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, familiar passage to uh, all of you in this room, uh, so we don't have to lean into it from an explanation standpoint, uh, maybe, uh, you know, as much as we would in, you know, in just a, a church that we're preaching in or something, because you know this, you know what is going on. What I want to do is I want to try to get you to look uh, uh, at this familiar passage through the lens of the subject that we're talking about, and that is, that's developing a leadership pipeline. We want you to see uh, how the Apostle Paul uh, challenged, uh, you know, uh, th this young leader, uh, and then also developed him, but also encouraged him to develop others. Uh, so, want you to want you to think about what's going on in chapter one. Okay, the apostle Paul starts off after the normal greetings in uh, uh, in verse three by saying, "I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors." 
with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. And I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Now I want to I pause right there, uh, you know, just at this point, and then I want to ask you to fast forward over into chapter 2 uh, in what Dr. Pace is going to talk about in just a little bit. Look at the beginning of chapter 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence uh, of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, I want you to think about what, you know, what has been said uh, at, at this point right here. I want you to think about what the Apostle Paul is describing. He has reached back and he said, um, my ancestors, you know, did this before me. I don't think he was trying to say all of his ancestors were Christians. I think he was saying they laid a foundation. They paved the road for something. And they gave this to me. And, and, and then, then he looks forward, uh, or really at the present, uh, somewhat back still, but, but talking about Timothy's situation. And he's saying, I handed this to your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and they, they then gave this to you. And then over in chapter 2, he's going to come back and say, now, you take this and you give it to some other people. You do it for some other people, but he doesn't stop there. He says, you do it for some others who will be able to, to do it with people after them. My favorite uh, event in track and field is the sprint relay race. I was never fast enough to run it myself, but I, I love the sprint relay race for lots of reasons. I, I love it because it's a team sport. I love team sports as opposed to just individual things. I, I love the precision, the timing that it takes, and all of those things. But my favorite thing about the relay race is that the relay race is a race that is not one just because your last runner crosses the finish line first. The relay race is a race that is run when your last runner crosses the finish line first carrying the baton. You see, you can be fastest around the track. You can get around first, but if you don't have the baton when you cross the line, you don't win the race. That makes this item all important. I think what Paul is describing here is a relay race. And I'm going to talk to you in just a minute about the identification of this baton, which raises the stakes, I believe, in, in leadership development. And if we're not careful, we, 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 we dumb this thing down, and, we're, and our, we've got our sights set on something that is lower than it should be. But from a big-picture standpoint, I want you to think about challenging leaders to this reality, this reality that they are involved in a, ra in a relay race, because that's what this is about. It, you know, we are involved in, we receive this from somebody that came before us, uh, and we are responsible for handing it to others, but we're not just handing it to others. We, as leader uh, de uh, developers, as leaders who are training leaders and wanting to raise up new leaders, we've, we've, got to, we've got to have a foresight in mind that is more than me just picking out some guys. 
me just finding some individuals that I'm going to train to be leaders. If that's, if that's as far as our, 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 our sight goes, we're not seeing this thing big enough. Paul was looking way down the road. He was looking way down the track when he was thinking about the development of this leader uh, who, by the way, he, you know, he had already invested a lot in. He was just trying to keep him from quitting at this point. This is really the context here. Timothy was about to walk off the track. He was about to throw in the towel and, and, and abandon this thing. Paul's writing to him, and he's, he's coming back to a leader he had poured into. But even in doing that, he, he's saying to him, you know, look, this thing, you know, this, the, the stakes are high here because you're going to be the link in leaders that come after you. You, you didn't get this on your own. I didn't get it on your own. And you can't, it can't stay with us. And so I want you to think just about this idea of the kingdom relay and remember that this is a team sport uh, that we are a part of. Uh, it is a task that we have to engage with others. Uh, and we are responsible in that for a long-range goal that can't be limited to oh, I'm training a group of leaders right around me. Uh, my training of leaders right around me has got to be in view of what those leaders will be able to then do. Will they be able to reproduce themselves? Will they be able to turn around and do what I'm doing with them with some other people? And so this relay race is something that reminds us that this is not an individual sport. And we're not raising up individual competitors. We're, we're raising up uh, individuals to be a part uh, of a team. A second thing that I, I just want you to see that is going on here, uh, just by way of application, is that we, we've got to constantly be exhorting uh, potential leaders to step up in this thing. You know, sometimes we think about leadership development just in terms of recognizing leaders. Uh, oh, that person has the ability, that person has the skill set, and certainly that, you know, that's part of it. We want to learn to look for different, you know, qualities, and there are qualities, I think, of, you know, of leaders that not everybody has. But sometimes uh, the development of a leadership pipeline uh, in that conversation, I think we miss the, you know, the fact that this is something that we are going to have to stay with. I'm sure the Apostle Paul would have loved it if he could have just mentored Timothy, turned him loose. He goes and pastors the church at Ephesus over there, and then he could have just been done with it. Here's a guy writing from a Roman prison cell from which he would never be released. He's on his last leg. Chapter 4 tells us that he knew it. He's, he's about to pass off of the scene, but instead, in, instead of feeling sorry for himself and sitting in that Roman prison cell, reflecting back on all of the impact that he had made and you know just the experience he's had, th this guy's still going at it. And he's going at it by coming back to a leader that he had already developed to some degree, it already poured into him, and he's doing this. He's exhorting him to stay in the game. He is pleading with him. He's pressing into it. I don't, I don't know that for most leaders, uh, we saw this thing as, as just the natural outgrowth of our ministry. You know, I, I, don't, I know when I, God called me to preach, that's about all I knew. 
And I just was doing the math thinking, well, pastors get to do that the most, so I'll probably be a pastor. But I know that I wasn't thinking, you know, as much about long-term impact of my ministry and, you know, the influence that I could have and all of the different, you know, the things that I would be able to do uh, in, in ministry. Uh, but along the way, there were individuals who were speaking into my life saying, hey, by God's grace, you can do this. By God's grace, stay with it. I mean, could I, I just be transparent with you, though, and Scott knows this, just this week, just this week, I, you know, I encountered a situation that quite honestly, it is quite honestly, just, it, you know, it, it, it was something that just made me think, gosh, I'm not sure I want to do this anymore. I know that sounds awful, but I, I still have times like that in my ministry. And I'm, you know, I'm 58 years old. I've been doing this for 30 years. But, but there are still, this is, this is a difficult thing that requires us to keep stepping up. And if that's true, and we need people, and, and I didn't finish the story and tell you, there were people, there were brothers, that, and, and this guy's one of them. There, there were people in my life here that, that called me, that came to me, that spoke to me, and, and they, they kept saying this right here. Oh, man, you stay with this. It's worth it. It's worth it. You keep doing it. I don't think that ever goes away. I don't think that ever, and we can't forget about that with regard to the leaders, uh, the leaders that we're developing. Now, not only Kingdom Relay, but I want you to think about the baton. In, in this next paragraph, and, and I'm not going to read it for you, I'm just going to tell you for the sake of time. You know what Paul starts talking about here? He starts talking about the gospel. And, and, and he, he references it in, in a number of different ways by word at the end of verse 8 and suffering for the gospel, you know, by the power of God. Then in verses 9, you know, and, and 10, he's actually describing it. He's given us a ca capsule of it, you know, that uh, God called us with a holy calling, not because of our works, his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before time began. Now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death, brought life and immortality to life. How? Through the gospel. All right? So, so Paul gives one of those capsules, gospel capsules, kind of like 1 Corinthians 15, you know, uh, you know when he, you know, he, he just gives that little snippet of the gospel. We all need to have some of those always in our pockets. Paul had a lot of them, and this is one of them. He describes the gospel. He mentions it. He describes it. He comes back. He uses the word again, and, 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 and then... And then he's going to describe it in verse 13 as, as that which has been entrusted to me. He calls it a pattern of sound words. In verse 14, he calls it the good deposit. Over in chapter 2 that Scott will talk about, he's going to, call it, he's going to describe it as the things you've heard from me. All of these are references to the gospel. You know why he's doing that? He's trying to give a gospel presentation here? No. He wanted to make sure that Timothy understood what the baton was. You see, it's a great picture, this relay race. We see that. My forefathers handed it to me. I handed it to your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. They handed it to you. You go hand it to the mother. Relay race. But you understand, if we don't get the baton, if we don't understand, and listen to me, come in here real close, if we don't understand why we're training leaders and what we're training leaders for, then we can spend our lives having conferences like this, reading books on the subject, learning more about leadership, but totally miss what we are doing. We're not just training leaders. We're training a particular kind of leader. And we are training leaders for a particular purpose. That's going to say everything about what we look for in leaders and what we train them to do. 
And brothers and sisters, listen to me. This, this baton is the reason we are doing that. It is a gospel stewardship. This, this, this is the stewardship of the most precious commodity in all of the universe. If you look at training leaders as something, oh, yeah, that's one of the things. But that's not really my thing. I'm doing this over here. And, you know, and, and that's what, then remember this. Remember, remember how high the stakes are. Remember what it is we're doing this for and why we're doing it. And, and remember, remember that this is God's plan A for the advancement of the gospel, and he has no plan B. And that is for twice-born men and women like me and you to receive this baton from people that have run this race before us and for us to run our leg of the race well, yes, but as a part of that along the way, we're handing this to individuals, but not just individuals that we can hand it to, individuals that we intentionally and purposefully are thinking about handling it to somebody else. It's not just a relay race. It's not just a team sport. It's not just about training leaders, but it is about training leaders to steward the most precious commodity in all of the universe. That raises the stakes on this deal. It raises the stakes of the urgency and the importance of us doing this and the attention uh, that we give it. The other thing that, that I want you to just note here real quickly is th this, this work of stewarding this is costly work. It is costly work. When you look at this passage, Paul starts off in verse 8 saying, Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, but share in suffering for the gospel. Language of the New Testament, it's a triple compound word. It, it, it puts together the three words, suffer bad together. How about that for some encouragement? Hey, brother, come, I want to train you as a leader to suffer bad together. That this is what we're doing. And, and, and Paul doesn't put in, he's going to use the same word over in chapter 2. But in the middle of it, he is pe he's appealing to Timothy. Man, step in here, stay in here, grit your teeth by the grace of God. And that permeates this text, the resourcing of God. He, he, says, he says, you stay in there and you do this because the stakes are high. I was talking with a brother yesterday just about some of the same things, things we see on the landscape of theological education as well as on the landscape of the local church. And he was referencing another brother who had had a change in ministry, and he asked him why, why he changed you know, his ministry, why he went to do what he's doing. And his response was very intriguing. He said, I, I got tired of the race for the bottom. I want you to think about that. I, I, that. That phrase has been indelibly, secondhand, impressed in my mind. He said, I got tired in the ministry I was in where all it was about was dumbing things down so we could get more people involved and draw more people and get more of their money. I got tired of the race for the bottom. I think that is about as far from the way the Apostle Paul trained leaders as possible. He wasn't interested in dumbing anything down just to get more people involved. And I, I want to encourage you this with regard to developing a leadership pipeline. When we think about a task, a practical task like this, it's real easy for us to, to make leadership everything and to dumb down the qualifications of leadership and to lower the standard because we know we need more leaders. And we want more people involved. We want to train more leaders. But if we're not careful, we will find ourselves caught up in the race for the bottom. 
How can we dumb this down to the point just so we can get more people involved? It happens in theological education. It happens in the local church. The Apostle Paul, in exhorting a young leader to stay in the game and to keep going, had to have been tempted. I mean, you know, I'm thinking Paul had to be tempted. Well, maybe not. Jim Shaddix would have been tempted. You know, to come to Tim and say, hey, man, I didn't see this coming, all this stuff you're dealing with. you got some health problems. you got people attacking you in your church. They don't want to follow you because you're too young. There's a lot of false doctrine out there. Nero's turned up the heat of persecution. Hey, I didn't see this coming. Maybe the best thing for you to do is just lay low and let the smoke clear, and let's see how this thing plans out. No. He comes in there, and he says, bro, you step up. The stakes are high here. This is a costly ministry, and it may cost you your life. And he's actually going to imply that next. But, uh, you know, he, he, he not only kept the standard up here, it seemed that his way of developing leaders was to keep raising the bar. Raise it up and say, this is what this is because the stakes are high here. That means the demand are high. And this is going to cost you something. You don't add leadership to your plate and nothing change. It's kind of like sacrificial prayer, right? We challenge people to sacrificial prayer. You don't add sacrificial prayer to your life and not give up something. Something has to go away. Scott's going to talk some about that in, in chapter 2 in, in just a second. This is the nature of the And, and he, he tells Timothy this. You, you know, suffer bad together. This is costly. The last thing uh, that, that I want to put on is this kingdom relay and this gospel stewardship of this baton, but just the encouragement really circling back to the fact that this is a team sport, that this, look, this is going to take a partnership. This is going to take us working together, leaders working together, uh, leader developers working together. You got this, uh, you know, this weird story beginning in verse 15 about this guy with a funny name named Onesiphorus. The Apostle Paul says, everybody in Asia is turning away from me. Name some names right there. You know, they, they, were, they, were, they were hightailing it away from association with Paul because Paul was a target at this point. But then he turns around and he says this in verse 60. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know well all the service he rendered to me at Ephesus. Now, listen, this is not a random thought. Paul's not chasing a rabbit here. And part of the reason we know that is at the end of verse 16 because he says Onesiphorus was not ashamed. He's already said, Timothy, don't you be ashamed. And then he comes down a little bit later in that second paragraph and says, I'm not ashamed. And then he says, Onesiphorus was not ashamed. But here's the thing that challenges me, brothers and sisters, is that the, the, you think about what's at stake right here. Timothy is about to walk off the track. Paul is exhorting him to stay in the game. And so he reaches into his ministry experience to find an example to encourage Timothy, to inspire him. And I think at that point, of all the guys Paul could have used at this point, the apostle Peter, Barnabas, Apollos, the great orator, John wrote the gospel in three letters, and on and on we could go with the, the platform people, if you will, the rock stars of Christian leadership. And in this moment, the Holy Spirit, with the stakes this high, the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to reach to a guy who has a funny name and only gets three verses in the Bible. And he points to him and he says... You, you look at him. 
you look at him. And he pointed to a guy, brothers, that was an example of the fact that the Apostle Paul knew that he needed somebody in his life. And that Timothy was going to have to have the same thing. We've got to help one another in this. It's part of what you're doing right here. We've got to encourage one another, exhort one another, teach one another. But even out there, we're going to need to continue to do this. It's not something we can do. It and we've got to train our leaders to understand they can't do this alone. And we have to be willing to die for this. We've got to be willing to spend our lives at this. You know, the implication of the story of Onesiphorus is that this cost him his life. Everything's in the past tense. He sought me, he found me, refreshed me, served me, all of those things. Plus, he says, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. He'll say that again at the end of the epistle. He doesn't say, may the Lord grant mercy to Onesiphorus. And then he has this doxological prayer, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord in that day. Onesiphorus went into Rome looking for Paul when there was a sea of terrified faces flooding out. All the Christians were hightailing it out. Onesiphorus goes in. Somewhere along in this journey, this partnership, this help, cost him his life. That's part of raising the stakes. It's part of keeping the bar high. It's part of what we have. But it also is a compelling lesson to what we're doing in developing leaders and the leaders that we need to develop. This has got to be something that we approach and we go into ready to spend our lives on because it very well could and it very well will cost some of the people we train their lives physically like it did Onesiphorus. Dr. Pace, come and pick this, and hand you this baton, brother. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I don't know if you know this, but um, I'm so grateful for the ministry of Dr. Jim Shaddix, not only because of what he just shared with us and countless messages and sermons I've listened to that he's offered, but the life that he's lived that models this and the legacy, if you want to compare it to a Nick Saban type thing as he did at the beginning, has been what his legacy is in terms of reproducing those who are then faithfully reproducing others. And, you know, I, I think about how I landed where I'm at, and maybe you can relate to this story, but as I think through what he just described, as I think through my testimony, people that invested in me, people that invested in me with the goal of helping me then invest in others, and even as I kind of began to discern my call to transition uh, out of full-time local church ministry into what we might call theological education or what I actually lean towards in terms of ministry preparation, one of the things my wife helped me see, she said, Scott, you're serving in, in this church, and we're, we're you know, being faithful here, and God's using us, but you've got an opportunity. This was before I transitioned from Florida to Oklahoma uh, to teach at a university there. You've got an opportunity to go invest in those who are then going to multiply into churches. And I know Jim and I have talked about this. That's a lot of the reason why we're doing what we do full-time now, and you guys are in a similar position. You guys are in a situation where you have chances to invest in multiple churches and for that influence to trickle down. And so what we're talking about is we're raising up this leadership pipeline. This is what you guys are doing from your post and your position. And as you follow the progression of Paul's thought through these first couple of chapters of Timothy, you begin to see not just only his exhortation, but his explanation of what to do next. What are we training them to do? And I just want to spend a few minutes... Uh, of my time, kind of walking through what's very familiar to you in these uh, next few verses, the first few verses of chapter uh, 2, where Paul begins to use these metaphors. 
these these descriptive lang this descriptive languages to uh, this analogous language, if you will, to help paint different elements of aspects of what we're training them to do. And so, if you continue to follow along, we'll pick up where uh, Jim mentioned earlier in, in verse one of chapter two. He says, "You then, my child, be." strong in the grace or be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And it comes back to the heartbeat of that baton that we're carrying. It's found in the gospel itself. Uh, I, I love this phrase, to be strong in the grace, because grace has been a word that's been feminized in our culture, right? He moves or she moves so gracefully. But Paul here uses it as that which will sustain you and strengthen you. You be strong in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as he, as he does that, continue reading in verse 2, and he says, And what you have heard from me, as Jim mentioned, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will then be able to teach others also. We're going to come back and talk about each of these metaphors, but that's the first one he uses as it relates to a teacher. Then he says in verse 3, Share then in the suffering, and there's that term that we mentioned earlier, uh, share in bad together. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And he then describes what that soldier does. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, but since his aim is to please the one who has enlisted him. Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. In verse 6, he says, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. As you look at these different metaphors, it kind of gives us some explanation of what we're actually training leaders to do. Now, i got to confess something. As I began to kind of pray through this and prepare this, in my mind, I was beginning to think of training young leaders, and even some of my, my points, if you will, had that phrase in, and I, and I backed up a minute, I thought, wait a minute, it really isn't dictated by age, and in fact, if you look at Timothy's situation, he wasn't just training people who were younger than him. In fact, that's what Paul's admonition to him was about in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, is that God's going to use you to influence older. And so as you look at it, don't, don't fall in the same trap I almost did to just categorize those that you're training or investing in as one shape or one form or one type of face, but that it's younger, that it's older, that it doesn't fit the typical stereotype uh, that we oftentimes try to pin it in the corner of. And as you begin to train those leaders, I want to look at these metaphors, see not only what we're training them to do, but then specifically look at your role and your uh, service as a perhaps a bivocational pastor, certainly as an association mission strategist, and see kind of what we're actually training them to do. Here's the first thing that I kind of noticed that as we looked at developing leaders. First, we should develop leaders to serve Christ as dedicated teachers. We should develop leaders to serve Christ as dedicated teachers. You know, Paul talked about that what he had learned and what he had heard and then what he had shared and then what had come to Timothy second and then third hand and, and, and even first hand from him directly, well, he was able to then pass on to others for this particular goal, those who will be able to teach others also. This role of teaching, this role of influence, this role of informing, this role of what we might call educating, not necessarily in the academy, but kind of that boots on the ground training, real life training in the school of hard knocks, in the school of real life, as well as in the school of theological education. What do we uh, think about when we're thinking about developing them as teachers? First, we have to commit to faithful learners. We've got to commit to faithful learners. That requires a little bit of, of the responsibility on our part by way of commitment, but it also helps identify who we're targeting in this. You know, uh, Jim mentioned um, kind of being strategic in identifying those, not just looking at people that, that uh, will, will kind of be around us and learn from us and listen to us, but specifically those who would then be able to turn around and invest in the next one. I, I think about um, 
a stage in ministry for me that was really kind of an eye-opener. It was when I was investing in um, some, some young people, and as I began to be discouraged by some of the progress I thought we were making, that I found out we weren't. And I realized who I was investing in. It was some of those ones that I thought would have the biggest influence for the good and for the gospel. And I was trying to leverage those bigger-than-life personalities, those ones that seemed a little more gifted, the ones uh, that kind of stood out and were a leader among their peers. And as I was, began to be disappointed and really discouraged, at that moment, my, my phone rang. And I remember picking up that phone, and the person on the other end of the phone was the opposite, the archetype of that type of, of person I was going to invest in. They were the ones that nobody necessarily looked to as a leader. They were one that everybody respected, everybody liked, uh, but they didn't necessarily have the persona or the, uh, the, the, the public giftedness. And he began to just say, hey, Pastor Scott, I just wanted to call and encourage you. I just wanted to say thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you for, uh, you know, everything from teaching me the Bible to giving me a ride when I needed to, to work or to various things. You know, thank you. And I remember, to shorten the story, hanging up that day and looking at an intern that I had sitting there with me. I mean, this was in practice. And I said, that's it. It changes everything. I'm no longer looking to invest in the one that seems to be the brightest star that may, in fact, burn out. I'm looking to, be, to invest in the ones that really are hungry for the truth, that will then be passionate to put it into practice and to be faithful. This is what Paul's describing here as he says, entrust to faithful men, looking for those who have proven some faithfulness, but who also will demonstrate faithfulness in the future. We have to commit to faithful learners. I, I, I think this goes beyond just looking for those ones who are kind of the rock stars in your areas, in your um, you know, demographic or in your um, geographical area, uh, in, in your place of ministry, but looking for specific ones. That may include not just church members, but church pastors. Maybe this isn't the, the pastor of the biggest church in your association. Maybe this isn't the pastor that most people flock to or gravitate towards. They might not even be the ones that need the most training or would be receptive to being taught. But it's the ones who uh, aren't the popular. It's the one who aren't the most prominent that we should be actually looking to invest in. We must commit to faithful learners. Second, he describes this, entrusted to faithful men who will then be able to teach others also. We must commission faithful leaders. That if we're training them to be teachers, it's not just about what they learn from us, but what they will then pass on to the next. It's about what they'll pass on. And commissioning them means that we don't hoard them for ourselves, you know, but that we turn them loose. And many times we're, we're all prone to trying to, to kind of um, welcome and invite others to study under us or to learn from us or to hang around us and to partner with us and we're reluctant to deploy them but that's the goal and it's just like i've got uh, four children our, our oldest now is about to turn 16 and uh, you know i faced this reality or, or thought through this reality for years and now about to face it uh, in the next couple of years that my goal is not to train a lifelong child is to produce a grown-up adult is to commission some, uh, a young disciple to go live faithfully for the cause of Christ, not under my roof, but as she establishes her own life and own household, and for all of our kids that way. And so in the same way, as we look at this ministry responsibility, developing leaders to serve Christ as dedicated teachers, choosing to commit to faithful learners and then commission them as faithful leaders themselves is, is what that responsibility includes or involves. I want to encourage you just with some practical thoughts as it relates to maybe the associational work that you're doing. 
I, I want you to know that the equipping avenues, and you already know this in, in large part, equipping avenues may be the best resources you provide for your churches. Look for ways to equip them to provide for them what they're trying to provide for other people. Whether that's, hey, listen, I don't know how you're doing small group, but perhaps we can provide some small group training. I don't know what kind of theological education you're providing, but perhaps we can come along aside, uh, alongside you and uh, equip some of your um, uh, younger people or people, the leaders you're developing in your church to provide some theological education. This in particular is one place I see us as Southeastern as being able to come alongside you, whether it be through distance learning resources, whether it be through uh, establishing equip centers, uh, all these other resources we have, not to recruit your people to come to us, but for us to send our people to you and at least the resources we have for you to invest in the people there to multiply in indigenous leadership uh, in your association. So we should develop leaders to serve Christ as dedicated teachers. Second metaphor Paul uses, we should develop leaders to serve Christ as deployed soldiers. He, he mentions in verse 3 and verse 4 what this looks like. He describes a good soldier, specifically speaking to that one who is faithful. But he tells him what the soldier will, what will be required of the soldier is to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. It's to be expected. In verse 4, he describes and he says that no soldier who's enlisted in active duty gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who has enlisted him. When it comes down to training these as deployed soldiers, uh, this is what we're teaching them. We're teaching them that you must be faithful to the master, that their ultimate responsibility is not necessarily to please their congregations. It's not necessarily to please the other pastors in their association. It's not to please the state convention leaders. It's not to please uh, anybody else, any individual or group of individuals. Ultimately, their allegiance is to the master considers how he might please the one who has enlisted him. It's his aim. It's his goal. It's his ultimate focus. We must train and teach leaders to be faithful to the master, that that's their ultimate responsibility. Paul told the Galatians this as he reflected on his own ministry, and he says, who am I trying to please? If I find myself pleasing man, I'm no longer pleasing Christ. This is our ultimate goal, and this is the, the mindset of a soldier. It also is not just to be faithful to the master, but to be focused on the mission. He says that this soldier, this good soldier, doesn't entangle himself in civilian affairs. He doesn't become distracted by secondary and tertiary pursuits. He's not looking at those things that may be of significance from a worldly perspective, a civilian affair uh, that doesn't have anything to do with the kingdom battle and the kingdom mission, but he's focused solely on what the mission is trying to accomplish and playing his part in it. Help them to see from a mission focus, a kingdom mindset. This is something that oftentimes our leaders aren't trained to think through. They begin to think through their own kingdom's lens of success. They begin to think of building their own kingdom by way of ministry. But seeing this is, is what Jim described as a partnership, as something that's bigger than ourselves, as something that offers them perspective and keeps them focused. So being faithful to the master and focused on the mission, what this looks like for you and for me is that we would model for them we would invest in them, and then we would be strategic with the things that we're teaching them. I also think that it may look like for you, considering something that's new and a little bit out of the box, like a residential internship. We hear of those at churches, but one of the things I've begun to consider as part of one of the programs we offer here is trying to enlist young men who would then go serve in a, in a residential internship capacity in an association. And I'll tell you why. When I was doing uh, interims in Oklahoma, I, I did more than a half dozen of them or so, and, and uh, I would take our family. Our family would go and serve, and we served at all different types of churches. And when I say types, 
I mean, from style of worship to uh, structure of leadership uh, to all these different elements and aspects, and is, is older demographic, younger demographic, all these different things. And one of the most healthy things about it was that it exposed our children to different types of church context. And I began to think through this kind of in, in my own ministry responsibility here, and I thought, you know, a lot of times the, 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 the people I'm investing in, they, they were raised in a certain type of church. They then go on to do an internship in that same type of church, and then they go to lead or pastor that same type of church. And it's a very single, you know, focused type of uh, exposure, if you will, to what church ministry and context looks like. And so as I began to think about this recently, last few months here, I thought, man, if a, if, if a student was doing um, an internship in an association, and, and say that association had, I was talking to somebody yesterday, and Mark said, man, a few months ago, uh, we had 10 different uh, churches in my association that didn't have a pastor. They're down to two now, praise God. But if you had a season like that where you had 10 different churches, what if a student was preaching in 10 different churches? You know, just once a Sunday, but for 10 different weeks at 10 different churches, what would that expose them to by way of experience? Not just opportunities and reps in the pulpit, but now chances to see different people, different churches, different contexts, different worship styles, all these different things, different issues, different challenges, they would expose them to that. And so when you look for people that you're investing in and training, consider who you might bring in, not just to put them in a church, but to expose them and see the benefit of exposing them to various types of churches. Uh, help cultivate this mindset by the ministry that you offer in your partnership with the churches. See uh, your role and your responsibility in that way. Be Devoted to pleasing the master, not just catering to that prominent church pastor in your association. Be mission-oriented and kingdom-focused, not just single association or single church focus, but looking at how you can expand your partnerships to other churches and in conjunction with and, and, and um, uh, with other associations in your area. Third, let's look at the next uh, metaphor he uses. We should develop leaders to serve Christ as disciplined competitors. Uh, it's not ungodly or unbiblical, even though it may not be uh, prescribed uh, in public speaking to use an athletic uh, illustration, you know, because uh, Paul does it here, and we know that he does it over and over, and it's not just limited to him, but he describes here an athlete that is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. There's a couple of principles that you can look at when you see this metaphor that Paul's saying, train them and develop them as disciplined competitors. What that means is that we must train them to win. He says that that an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rule. To mention the crown there means that we are actually fighting for something. We're competing for something. And that crown, and, and we can get into the different crowns of the New Testament, the point here in this metaphor is simply to focus on the fact that there is a goal, that there is a pursuit, that you're not just meandering through a lazy walk around the lake. You're not just going for a, a jog that doesn't have implications, but that you're training to win because what we're investing is is costly. It is eternal. It is significant. And we must train to win. When we train to win, that means that we must do it according to the rules, that we're not bypassing things. Uh, we could certainly look at modern-day uh, athletics and see the way that people have tried to bypass the rules with uh, things like PEDs or, or, or those types of things. But when you look at training the right way, investing in the healthy things, we must train with the goal in, in mind to win. Let's also try to win. That involves how you run. Not just how you train, but how you run, that you run hard that you do recognize what's there. You know, when I think about training to win and trying to win, and I look at uh, 
what leaders need to remember or learn, whether it's for the first time or to be reminded of it, is how to properly measure or define success. What actually constitutes wins and losses? I don't know about you, but I've walked through seasons in ministry where I've been challenged or my thinking has been challenged on this over and over, and I've had to recalibrate from time to time to say, wait a minute, what really matters, what really measures ultimate success to train to win and to try to win is faithfulness. It's faithfulness. That's God's standard and measure of success. Whether you look at Jesus and his teaching, well done, good and faithful servant, whether you look at other passages of Scripture that emphasize this, whether it takes the responsibility of us in terms of manufacturing or measuring the results, but to look how God is evaluating us as a steward of what we've been entrusted with. We've been entrusted really with two things in Paul's letters to Timothy, the gospel and our gifts. And we've got, to, we've got to be faithful stewards with both of those. Teaching them how to measure success is important because oftentimes those are the very things that distract us and cause us to veer off course or, dare I even say, begin to cut corners in how we train and how we try. That's what will lead us to begin to do things is when we begin to lose sight of how we measure it. But also help them to see the value of theological education and practical experience. Recognizing the blend of both. Right? When I look at kind of our partnerships together with, with the local church, with associations, it's recognizing that what we offer and what you offer as we partner together in the gospel, both are essential. I remember in my own uh, training in theological education how I got married uh, really my second week of classes in seminary. I didn't come from a, a theological training background. I've got an accounting degree from a secular state school. I served as a, a, a business manager for a couple of years and then uh, transitioned into God's call on my life, into ministry, and began to, to, to come here, actually, 20 years ago uh, for my theological education. I got married my second week of classes, and I, I made this statement that I really was... Uh, didn't have the, the foresight and, or even the understanding to, to be able to speak accurately. But I told my wife, I said, you know, while we're in seminary, while we're in school, I, I, we won't be serving somewhere in ministry, formally speaking. Like, I, I won't have a job or a role in ministry. This is God's time to grow us and to groom us. And within a year, through faithful involvement in the local church, we were on staff. <laughs> okay? And it came that way. Looking back, I would not change it any way, in, in any way, shape, or form. I, I wouldn't go back and change a thing. To have the blend between the library and the laboratory, to have one inform the other and the other help filter uh, the, 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 the laboratory, all of those things ended up being helpful for me. And when I look at that, I, I want to, to encourage you to challenge those people that you're encouraging that I know the statements, I've made the statements, I affirm the statements that there are some things that you can't learn in seminary. We all know, hey, you won't learn that in seminary. And I've tried to encourage us as we've developed different courses, hey, let's develop courses that will teach, will be the seminary that teaches you what you won't learn in seminary. Because so many of our professors have ministry, current and former uh, ministry experience. But as we do that, let's see the value of the theological education side of it encourage them, help them to see that it's not just a diploma on the wall because that in, in no way actually measures the education of what they've learned. There's plenty of people uh, with those things on their wall that don't know anything about ministry, right? But there's also plenty of people in ministry who are lacking what that should represent, and that's a solid grounding of theological education. So that may be a place that as you uh, train them or develop leaders to serve as disciplined competitors, you help them understand what's involved in holistic training uh, and, and well-rounded training. Lastly, very quickly, uh, 
God calls us to develop leaders to serve Christ as diligent farmers. He uses this last metaphor, and he says it's the hardworking farmer that ought to have the first share of the crops. When you look at this, I, I think that you easily recognize the, the adjective that he uses to describe the farmer. He doesn't just describe any farmer. He describes the hardworking farmer. What that means is that hard work is required. You and I both know uh, plenty of people who are in ministry, who got in ministry because they believed and they're even using ministry um, in such a way that really doesn't do ministry or the Lord justice. Right? Ministry is simply, uh, in their minds, a, a place that gives them a chance to know people, a chance to kind of uh, be lazy, uh, a chance. They, they're abusing the ministry office and responsibilities they have. They're, they're coasting. And whether, listen, we see it in all kinds of professions. Certainly we see it in pastors. We see it in associations. We see it in state conventions. We see it in uh, professors. We see it in all kinds of areas. But what we understand from God's word is that when we're developing leaders, we recognize that this is the hardest work that you can do. People say, is it really the hardest work you can do? And we know the stereotypes that church members have, right? Well, you know, you show up on Sunday and Wednesday, and that's the nature of your work. You know, you work, you know, five hours a week. That's great. These types of things. And we can laugh with them and, and not try to explain it to them. Don't get defensive in those things. But as we do, we have to develop these leaders to help them understand that it does require hard work. Hard work that most people won't be able to tangibly measure or maybe even see. Hard work that happens in hours that aren't in the public eye. Hard work that deals with messy situations that um, aren't those things that make you feel warm and fuzzy. That hard work that has a burden on your soul that as Paul described it in 2 Corinthians 12 as he looked at over all the things he had suffered from being uh, shipwrecked 11 and 12 from being shipwrecked and and going in hunger and 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 uh, being exposed to all the elements of winter and and, uh, and heat all these different things the lashes the 39 lashes all the beatings he said but on top of all this he saved the biggest wasn't the straw that broke the camel's back this was the pox on top of everything else this was the heaviest burden he said what I have the burden for the churches on my soul I bear the burden of the churches. That makes our labor even more difficult. That makes it even harder. And hard work is required. It's not something that just happens. While God is the one performing the work, as we cooperate with us, it will exhaust us. I try and tell young people, as many as I can, can tell, listen, there's nothing sweeter than to lay your head on the pillow at night to know and to be able to say between you and God, I'm exhausted. But God, I gave it all for you today. I gave it everything I had. I left it on the field in sports terminology. I left it out there on the court. I didn't do it perfectly. I had a couple turnovers. I might have thrown a pick, whatever it may be, but I gave it all. Hard work is required. Here's the good news. Hard work is also re rewarded. 